These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. Today is December 3rd, and I'm at the uh, Land Stewardship Project Office, Ron Cruz, today to interview George Booty, who is the Executive Director of the Land Stewardship Project. George, I'd like to have you start out, as I do with most of the people I've been interviewing, uh, talking a little bit about what got you into this. You had a, a very interesting career in the areas of, around sustainable agriculture. How'd you get into it from the, I mean, even from the time you were a child, what interest you and led you on this path? Well, I was born in Western Minnesota, out on the prairie, and my mother grew up in a farm between Montevideo and Dawson, Minnesota. And so I have lots of memories of going pheasant hunting on the old homestead in the fall with my uncles, particularly, because my, my parents didn't hunt. And um, so that's, it's just, it's, that was part of my growing up. And then living in the rural community, or living in the rural community, going back there pretty often. We then moved up to Sandstone and then Cambridge on the Sand Plains. So there I grew up with a cornfield in my backyard. My dad was a physician, small town doctor, so he took care of lots of people, lots of farmers lots of other people in rural communities, and then I worked at the state hospital in Cambridge. So we lived on the property, and they they used to grow food and other products and, as part of their operations. Oh, the hospital did? Yeah. Uh -huh. They didn't, I mean, they rented it out yeah. at that point. But uh, but anyway, so there was a cornfield in my backyard, so I played in it lots, lots. And then I, I picked potatoes. <laughs> As a kid, because that's the sand plain, and that was good for growing potatoes in, around Cambridge. You made extra money as a kid. Yeah, right? yeah, just as one of the jobs. They're not picking potatoes, but working in the warehouse, actually. So, yeah. so I don't know. That was that was part of my upbringing along with the garden and those kinds of things, just being out in nature. And then when I got into school, I ended up working toward biology. And uh, and I got to spend some time at, at the uh, up at the Cedar Creek Natural History Area, um, and looking at more natural systems there. But I um, I got involved in uh, in organic agriculture, kind of in between uh, graduating with biology and and uh, going back to school. And um, I got interested in food then too. And so I was spent some time at MIT in the graduate program on international nutrition policy and planning. And it was, you know, so we were looking at these places around the world and what the Philippines were trying to do with their nutritional war room and all this kind of stuff. And it became pretty obvious to me that, well, it's important to grow good food where people live. And that uh, we needed to do that back home here too. And that kind of led me down a path toward organic agriculture. So I got involved with the Organic Growers and Buyers Association back in the 70s. That's when we first met. Yeah, and one of the policies I'm actually pretty proud of 
is that uh, uh, Yvonne Buckley and I worked with a, a legislator at, at the in the Minnesota House to pass the first three-year organic standard in the nation. Because at that time, it was one year in, one year out. <laughs> That's what California was back in those days. And, you know, those of us who know something about organic agriculture know that you can't drop into it for a year and have it work. It takes a lot longer to build up the soil and get things going. So, um, uh, and functioning in a, in a good biologically healthy way. And then gradually that concept of a minimum of three years became even the, the basis that still exists for the, uh, under the organic act. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it had an, it had an impact, I think. I'm not sure. I think others went to three years pretty close after that, but we were amongst the first, if not the first, state to do that. Um, so, you know, again, kind of looking at what's needed versus what exists and where do we need to go to in looking at policy has been an interest of mine. From it continues the, to be. And continues to be. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, those are some of the things that got me started down this path. So I was involved in, I was a certifier, on, or an organic certifier, was on the board of the Organic Growers and Buyers Association and certified some of the early farms, including the Ed Hauk farm, mm. <laughs> before it, you know, was lost to the insurance companies and taken over. So for, for people looking at this video that might not know the story there, um, Ed Hauk was an early organic farmer. He had a beautiful farm. He put in, uh, farmed on the contours, used public money to assist him in, in putting in those good conservation practices. And he, uh, like many others, were encouraged to expand during the 1970s. And, and it didn't work out for him like it didn't work out for lots of other people, lots of other farmers. And when the export markets and so forth collapsed. So, then the insurance company took title to his farm and they rented it out to some, some farmer who just didn't give a hoot about the conservation, ripped it all out and plowed up and down the hill. You know, that was part of the early days with you and land stewardship. Yeah, that was in the mid eighties. Yep. yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was one of the, probably the supreme example because we had sort of before and after shots yep. from the air that just showed that kind of devastation. That uh, a lot of people who were even just moderately interested in agriculture started being concerned when they saw that sort of thing going on. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's a good, it's a, it's an uh, an important example of what we need to do differently to not let that kind of thing happening. But unfortunately, we seem to be in a recently, at least with the run up in prices in 2010 to 2012 or 13 or so. A commodity prices. We almost saw that same kind of thing happening all over again, where grassland or good ag good agriculture farmland with good practices was being turned into just commodity corn and soybeans, and uh, even when it was really steep slopes and wouldn't produce more than maybe a year or so, um, people just ripped it out of grass, put it into that, and. That's right. Uh, so we've seen that cycle more than once. Yes, we have. Unfortunately, yes. yeah. Well, then, were you uh, after you being a certifier? Did that when you went to the Minnesota Project? Well, I went there. I went to the Minnesota Project after that. Yeah. 
and to work on groundwater and sustainable agriculture issues and leadership development also in rural communities. So I grew, grew up in a rural community. My dad practiced medicine. My mom was born in a rural community. So I have an interest in their thriving and survivability. So I worked on, and that's where I actually first intersected you, I think. Well, no, I, I met you, I think, even before yeah, that, yeah. back in 1982 at that first conference on sustainable agriculture. And I'd written a couple of a paper about natural systems agriculture, I think, for that, for the, for that conference with this idea that we really do have to look to what nature is saying to us about how we need to farm, how we need to live and learn those lessons rather than just assume we know the right technology or we know the everything we need to know about what to do. Um, so, uh, and that's where we first met talking about sustainable agriculture. I think that was the first conference. We yeah, I think it was. Time. I think we actually may have met when you, I remember when you were actually working at the Organic Growers and Buyers Association. Somehow I knew, hmm. knew you a little bit, but not as well. So we, of course, got to know each other. And then ultimately we were able to lure you into the last surgeon. Yes, and that was great. I've, 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 uh, it's been a wonderful And what year did thing. you start? I started start? here in 1990. Uh, and then I became the executive director in 1993. Right, right. So since then. Um, and uh, I was involved in some of the early days and uh, both with the development of the Minnesota, what became the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture and some of those early days, not in the development of, but the sort of functioning of the Midwest Sustainable Agriculture Working Group. Right, and I can remember the organic growers and buyers were part of it, of what we call the Sustainers Coalition, as I recall. And uh, that was sort of the group of organizations that were interested in environmental sustainable agriculture and sustainable food systems that came together to put pressure on the University of Minnesota to pay more attention to sustainable life. Yeah, it was a really, it was an, it was an interesting time. Um, the University of Minnesota at that point was considered by most of the farmers in the, that were involved in sustainable agriculture in one way or another is uh, uninterested or worse. Um, I remember when I uh, invited Carmen Fernholz and others to a, a seminar that I helped put together on organic agriculture in 1982 at the University of Minnesota, and it was a very controversial thing. Many of the faculty thought, what's this? I mean, this is organic chemistry, right? Every, everything we're dealing with is organic. What are you talking about? Right. This is nonsense. That was the that was definitely the viewpoint, right. the dominant viewpoint at that at that time, and um, so it's shifted quite a bit. Now there are many more faculty members interested in it than there were then. Mm -hmm. There's some institutional support for it. I think it's I wouldn't overstate that, but there's more than there was then, at least. Oh, yeah. And um, and uh, Misa. Uh, came along a little bit later than that. I don't remember exactly what the dates were, but I know that we had a big important meeting with the university on the day the stock market crashed in 1987. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and Ken Taylor, of course, with the Minnesota Food Association was kind of the brain 
uh, one of the key organizer leaders behind the effort that led to the development of MISA. Yeah, another a number of people I've talked to in this yeah. interview process have talked a good deal about our friend, the late Ken Taylor. Yes. And the, uh, he was a man who really did try, understood how to use uh, organizing and power to bring about change. I learned a lot from him, as did several of us. Yes, same here. And, and that notion of power and understanding the dynamics of institutional power and what it takes to confront that and change it or modify it is really critical. And it's critical in the current work of the Land Stewardship Project as well, understanding power. Because without that, how can you possibly fight a more powerful institution? And they have the cards if you don't if you don't understand that. And yet he was able to do it in a very clear but respectful fashion that kind of really commanded respect in a sense. I always admired that. It, it it's definitely true. I and he was he was always one to say don't don't get uh, don't believe too much in your <laughs> right. outcomes. That was one of his uh, four tenets of, in, uh, about showing up, and listening, and speaking the truth, and but don't be overly attached to the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. are sort of his mantra. Yeah, that's right. Those are those are good uh, good good tenets to proceed. So. You know, the early days of MISA, again, it was, I remember this meeting. I think it was the 1987 meeting. That, that, by that point, my memory of how this got started was that uh, the dean of the University of Minnesota College of Agriculture at that time came to one of Ken Taylor's events, an urban-rural dialogue kind of a gathering of that, and spoke about, um, oh, aren't these vegetable farms nice? But, you know, we deal in real agriculture. Mm-hmm. And that was the opening. That was one of the openings to engage that that dean uh, in talking about. Well, there is a broader picture than that. We need a fuller understanding from your college to deal with the breadth of agriculture that really exists in this state, and to deal with the fact that what's wrong with the situation that. Um, Farmers are telling their kids to get out of agriculture because there's no future. Because that's what was definitely happening in those days. It was in the 80s after the after the crash and so forth. So, and anyway, back. So the, that led up to this meeting in 1987, and uh, I remember Gene Allen, who was then the dean, and I like Gene. He's a, he's a really fascinating person. But anyway, he got all excited in this meeting. It was carefully structured as anything Ken Taylor was involved in would be um, to present different points of view. Um, We were talking about uh, soil and earthworms and the value of earthworms uh, for agriculture anyway. And uh, and Gene said, well, it's those earthworm channels that the pesticide runs down, (laughs) gets to the water. So there it was. What's the problem? Earthworms or pesticide use? Um, so it was uh, it was exactly the opening we needed, you know, and that, that led uh, through a, uh, a further process to Gene, to his credit, forming providing the money that formed Minnesota Institute for Sustainable and Agriculture. And the further credit of you and several others I looked recently at the people that have served on the board of bringing, it was set up so that at the table there would always be 
people coming from the sustainable side as well as from the university, if we're going to say sides from the university view. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the years, that has been an effective model that's sometimes hard to maintain and hasn't always worked all the time. There's been struggles along the way, but that was a fundamental aspect of why MISA continues. I think so. And, uh, and we certainly have had problems along the way. We've had some losses along the way. We've lost some battles, I would say, uh, particularly when Dean Muscaplatt, a later dean, uh, fired Don Wise. That's and we tried, we worked really hard to, to overcome that, but we were never able to. Um, he prevailed, essentially. Um, so that was a big loss. And I think right now, one of the, 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 what MISA has done is not kept everything inside MISA, but it's led to the development of other things. So without MISA, I'm not sure we would have Greenland's Blue Waters which is one of the ways that we advocate for more diversity in agriculture mm -hmm. on the ground. And that's a multi-state, multi-NGO university effort. I don't think we'd have it without MISA, which was the, the center, the, the base from which it grew. Um, similarly, the, the regional sustainable development partnerships out of the U grew out of MISA. Um, so there's a number of things that have spawned from MISA, mm -hmm. and it's kind of the creative place for that to happen, um, even though it may not get the credit it probably deserves for that, that kind of approach. Good. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your uh, work with uh, Land Stewardship Project related to both state and federal policy. Mm -hmm. um, in your judgment, what are some of the areas that that have been taken on some of the policy issues and that have been uh, successful or been attempted and not successful. I'd like to get your view on that. Well, I think I think it's fair to say that the the song that you first helped to create with Chuck Hassebrook at mm -hmm. Center for Rural Affairs that became then the Midwest Sustainable Agriculture Working Group and the other working groups in other parts of the country and that led then to the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. I mean, out of that creative organizing, kind of organizing approach, um, has come some policies that are still on the books. Um, EQIP came, through, came from that, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. So that's a key delivery program for conservation uh, practice money and technical assistance right now. And I know that one of the major roles that Land Stewardship Project has played is with uh, policies is with the uh, Conservation Security Program, which now is called the Conservation Stewardship Program. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what the benefit of that, and the benefit being going to farmers who actually are practicing stewardship practices. It points the way to the future, though it may in itself not be the future in the way that the program has um, come to be constructed now and implemented. It still has good parts, but but I think it points to the future in a, in a, in a few key ways, and you've probably heard this from other people you've interviewed, but it was that's one of the principles is rather than paying people who are doing it wrong to do something right, so to speak, um, 
why don't we incentivize people who have already got a, a start down that down the conservation pathway and help them do more and make sure that they can continue to do that because there's all the other commodity programs are essentially stacked against that and provide the incentives to go toward maximum production of corn and soybeans and wheat and rice and so forth. So uh, that's a key principle. Let's, I mean, when we go to the marketplace to go shopping, we go to buy what, what we want, hopefully, or we try to, not what we don't want. So it's kind of similar to how the market's supposed to work. Um, and, and then it provides, it's, it's a payment for in essentially public services rather than a, 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 an installation, a, a way to install practices. It's a payment for the public service in, in essence, or hopefully it is. Including the benefits that go to wildlife and pollinators and things. So I'd like to have you actually touch on that. I, so one of the areas where I've seen, observed you being a leader is that sort of farming in the wild uh, view in the, the book that you uh, mm -hmm. took part partook in the authorship of. Talk a little about that. Well, you know, and this touches back on MISA. So one of the early projects that MISA helped fund was something we called the monitoring project. And it was with six farmers who were rapidly advancing in their understanding and practice of rotational grazing or management intensive rotational grazing. And so essentially that's a way of raising livestock on the land, a critical feature of a healthy agriculture, get them out of the confinement operations and back out onto the land where they where they can do what they evolved to do. Um, and um, in any way, they were under learning quickly about their practice of management intensive rotation grazing, moving them quickly to for maximum health and regrowth of the vegetation as well as... Right, so you as, don't damage the land, you actually benefit it by grazing. Exactly. And uh, what we were looking at there as well, how exactly does it benefit the land? So how does it benefit a stream to actually have cows right along the stream, not just excluded from it. There's plenty of examples of where they do it that's done badly. But there, there's ways of doing it so that the stream actually can be healthy. And we did the research with our colleagues at the University of Minnesota and agencies that showed that that's actually possible. And that, that led to the fact that that got led to published papers showing those, documenting those benefits led to the Environmental Protection Agency allowing management intensive rotational grazing to be an approved practice for uh, fecal coliform reduction in the streams in southeastern Minnesota. So that led to an official kind of acknowledgement. So those were refereed papers? Refereed papers, peer-reviewed papers, yep. Right. So that was, that was a little bit about the work of the monitoring project. And we said, well, if the farms are doing so well here individually in places in the landscape, what would happen if you could actually do change it on a landscape level, not just individual farms here and there? And that led us into doing modeling on that. Mm. And that we called the multiple benefits of agriculture paper. So looking at where on the landscape, it, it, we especially need grass or longer crop rotations or wetland restorations and looking at before and after changing corn soybeans to those practices. What was it? What, what do we estimate the runoff to be before that and after that? And then looking at the economics of that as well. 
So that was a pretty exciting paper. And we actually, that led us to be able to go back to the monitoring project because part of that was about uh, looking at the fish in the streams mm -hmm. and how healthy are they. In the multiple benefits project, we did that by estimating the uh, um, length of time the sediment would hang in the stream. Mm -hmm. And then that makes fish sick, mm -hmm. um, by, depending on the species. And so we estimated that, for example. So, And we showed that a, a roughly a 10% change in more grass in the landscape would have a huge benefit, and it would cost the public less mm -hmm. in, in payments through the farm bill. I remember meeting farmers when I was at Land Stewardship Project. A couple of them stick on my mind, particularly that the real measure for them on their farms who were fortunate enough to have a creek going through their property was to have it leave their farm cleaner than when the water entered it. Absolutely. And so Dan French was one of those farms. Yeah. Ralph Lentz was another. Um, uh, Mike Ruprecht, Mike and Jennifer Ruprecht were part of that. Uh, the cedar... Uh, Cedar, Dave and, Dave and Florence Menard were part right. of that. Right. So on all of those farms where most of them had streams, we did. We looked at, we measured the shape of the stream and the, the, uh, how healthy it was for fish and how many organisms were living in the bottom of the stream and the chemistry in the stream when it came into the farm and when it left. And even where the cows had access in a, in a careful kind of conservation planning way, we could show improvement in the streams when it went through their farms. And that, that was published in places with Brian DeVore's writing again, like the Minnesota Conservation Volunteer, which is a key magazine that it's influential in the state uh, in, for people who believe in conservation, including the agency people. So that led to a lot of inter interesting and controversial discussions. Some of our environmental colleagues thought we had gone AWOL. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just the idea with, with the animals in the stream has always been such a no-no to really get it. Yes. To look at it from a, a different perspective and, uh, and manage it. It does take good management. It takes good management. You have to have conservation planning in mind. Well, one upshot of it and a connection back to the policy is that we are, we're able to take some of that data in 2001 to Washington, D.C., that showing kind of predictions at a landscape level as part of the, uh, some of the conversations with, um, with the uh, House and Senate offices, Dave Mingy's office and, um, and so forth, to show them that something like a conservation stewardship program that led to this kind of change in the landscape could be beneficial. So it was a little piece of the information we had to document why this program might make sense oh, okay. and in a policy standpoint. And just for the sake of getting this on record, there was also a book that you participated in too, wasn't it, around this, the, the, what was the name of it? Farmers, the Farmer's Natural Habitat. Right. And uh, Dana Jackson and her daughter, Laura Jackson, co-edited the magazine. Brian DeVore on our staff wrote a number of the articles about farmers and their particular stories uh, about why it was so meaningful to them and what they were actually doing. And then I wrote an article about policy and about the need to shift our thinking from just land retirement programs on conservation, which... Up to that time, that was the main focus. Mm -hmm. Well, if we want to protect land, we just need to get it into the conservation reserve program. Right. 
That's a good program, but we need to do this on working lands, well, farmland as well. It's not enough just to retire, and we can never afford to retire as much farmland as we would want. And anyway, it doesn't have to be retired. If you have longer crop rotations, if you have good grazing, that land can be still raise food and achieve conservation benefits. And I think that uh, I see that as a very forward-looking effort because now, of late, you know, the decline in pollinators, uh -huh. the dangers that are starting to emerge from the neonics uh -huh. uh, on the seed and the uh, the lack of uh, of any milkweeds uh, yeah. in the fields, things like that, that uh, there, there needs to be a working land solution for these things that will actually benefit wildlife, including insects. Absolutely. And one way that we sort of think about that is we need more continuous living cover. That's a that's a sort of mantra from Greenland's Blue Waters. It takes right. green lands to have blue waters. Because right. if you got brown lands in the fall and the spring, you're going to get mud and soil in the water and lots of runoff. Right. And that's exactly what we are getting through the industrial agriculture approach. So we need we need diversity on the landscape. It's not all going to be organic. It doesn't have to all be organic. But if we if we could raise more animals on the land, and that might mean raising fewer animals in total, but the, the meat or the dairy products would be higher quality, probably more healthy for us, have the kind of fatty acid balances we need for our own health anyway, we'd be better off and the land would be much better off. And when you remove animals from the land and put them into confinement, then you remove the then you tend to limit the feed sources down to corn, soybeans, alfalfa, maybe a few other things. And that's one of the problems that we've got. Mm -hmm. Good. I uh, think about other policies going forward. I know that uh, one of the areas that, that can help move that uh, working lands, healthy working lands, would be improvements in crop insurance, as I understand it. That is a priority going forward for Land Stewardship Project and its allies involved with the National Sustainable Land Coalition. Yeah, it, it, it very much is. Uh, it used to be a, the main emphasis was on commodity programs where you, you pay for um, market failures or, or in other ways subsidize uh, commodity production of corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, particularly. A number of other crops too, but those are the biggies. And, um, and now that's kind of action has shifted more toward crop insurance. And, and crop insurance, like most of these programs, is probably a good idea. Most of the farmers we work with uh, that are at some scale probably use it. Um, and they would be foolish if they didn't. Um, so we need programs like crop insurance because agriculture is a risky business and climate can't be controlled. Right. And, and it can have a major impact on losses and so forth. But the way crop insurance has been designed now and, and, and developed by the industry, by the corporates, I'm sure Cargill is behind this. The big insurance companies are certainly behind this. The major commodity groups nationally are behind this. Um, it, it, and almost pays more when the price is high. 
I mean, what sense does that make? That's not a public purpose. And that leads to concentration of ownership because there's no caps on how much can be paid. So the larger you are, the more you get, which enables you to get even larger. Uh, drives the land prices up. Yeah, it drives, and, uh, and it drives marginal land out, especially during high prices when you then are even insured for high prices, you can afford to bring in marginal land. Uh, and there's other aspects of the program that allowed uh, a yield on this really poor ground to be merged with your best ground. So it looked like it was really good ground from a yield perspective when it isn't. So you were insured based on that top-notch yield rather than the poor yield you're going to get on poor ground. So there's a, a number of aspects of the program that are problematic. It didn't have, wasn't tied to conservation at all. There's, there's been some movement in that, but not nearly enough. So, so it's a priority to fundamentally shift how that program works. And I think... What we're aware of in the Land Stewardship Project particularly is we're at a time now where we have pushed corn and soybeans, for example, on so much of the landscape that we're just seeing major dysfunction in the way the water flows across the land and into rivers and the nitrogen that goes into the waterways and down to the Gulf of Mexico. We're beyond simple fixes, if we just tweak this or tweak that in the corn soybean system, that's not going to be enough. I think we're seeing that in practice. We're seeing that in, uh, in monitoring. We're seeing it in good modeling, in the modeling that we're doing, that we did with the multiple benefits. We, we found something similar. Uh, and similarly, in the follow-up work that we're doing within the Chippewa River watershed. Yes, talk so, a little bit about that Chippewa project. Well, again, it grew out of this notion that we had this modeling. We had first the monitoring and then modeling that showed there's some real benefits to diversifying the landscape. And then in the Chippewa, there's been, which is in western Minnesota, it's a, a major watershed within the Minnesota River Basin. So it's kind of at the top of the Minnesota River Basin. And the Minnesota River is one of the major contributors of pollutants to the Mississippi River. And um, so uh, there was years of good monitoring data that compared the different sub-basins within the Chippewa, some of which had 35% perennials, some of which had less. The ones that had 35% perennials met water quality standards. <laughs> And the ones that were 25% weren't. So that's the difference. That's where the 10% idea came from. Because it's called the 10% project. And that's where it came from, is that we need... This is suggesting to us that if we could convert about 10% of the watershed toward perennials of some kind, grasses, wetlands, forests, can be productive agriculture, perennials, that we think we could meet water quality standards. Um, so uh, the project is continuing to do that kind of in-depth monitoring of the streams and so forth. We have tile line monitors in a few places. We do, uh, we engage farmers uh, and in, in a kind of way of looking at narrative, I guess you could say. 
So um, farmers, when they go to the coffee shops and when they're meeting with the, the elevators and the commodity groups and the people who are selling them technology, what they're hearing is it's all about economics. You know, you may have heard the term, we have to feed the world. And that's not really a narrative. It's a message built on a narrative that says, and the way that we're going to do that is corporate control technology. That's who owns it. That's who delivers it. That's who develops it. So what we're trying to do is to go to farmers and say, what are your values about stewardship that you really deeply believe in? Or about the future of the community, the rural community that you're part of? And what you want for your land in the future? And then start building from that. So to give them a chance to break away from that, it's all about economics mindset and and open up what they really believe and then and then link them together with other farmers who express some kind of interest in that way and then help them with incentives uh, doing things like the haney soil test where we can look at the microbiological activity in the soil so doing that before changing to cover crops and then afterward and seeing the differences or ways of improving grazing so we get conservation benefits from that. And then they can grow more animals on their own grass. Um, and we can improve deteriorating grasslands from, from that, that aren't being properly managed, whether by the Nature Conservancy or the DNR or U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, because they don't have animals on them. And that's grasslands evolved with animals. Uh, and they thrive with animals if it's if they're managed properly. So that's we're so we're trying to engage farmers to to make the kind of changes that would lead to more continuous living cover on the soil. So we've got about twelve thousand acres changed with a variety of things, easements, um, converting corn and soybeans to pasture land in some cases. That's more marginal corn and soybean land. So that's where we're looking first. Where's the steeply slope? Where's the stuff right by the streams that really do need to be in something other than corn and soybeans? And then looking at cover crops is a way to ex get more cover on the land. So we're, we're engaging farmers in that way and then we're doing the modeling that's trying to show that we think we can probably achieve some water quality standards with about 10% more perennial cover in the watershed, which is about 110,000 acres or so. And uh, you feel like that there are farmers out there starting to hear this? Do you feel somewhat optimistic? I know it's young, it's just a couple, three years old or so. But. It's, I think so. I mean, farmers have changed, have made the decision to shift management on 12,000 acres. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been conservation program benefits. It would be helpful if there was more market pull to help with that as well. But that's, those are individual decisions by farmers or landowners to do that. We're engaging women. Uh, 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 a lot of farmland now is, is owned by, um, so-called absentee loaner, landowners. Mm -hmm. They may be local though, uh, and they, many of them may be women who in, uh, essentially inherited the land when their husbands died. Uh, so they now own it themselves, whether they, whether they owned it together before. And what are their values? Is it just the value of the rent check? 
in some cases that may be the case, but in some cases they believe they they want more about they believe in more about the value of that land if given a chance to express that and then given the means to say and here's how you write a conservation lease with your landowner and here's how you kind of talk to them and be prepared when they get mad or whatever's going to happen um, if they don't respond well to that the renter so so really helping people get the tools to both learn and get excited and curious. You know, Aldo Leopold talked about conservation's got to be more than utilitarian. It's got to be about curiosity and wanting to learn about what's going on. And so that's the approach we're trying to take in this. And then tie all this together with the modeling and the good science, both with historical and future climate predictions built in and uh, monitoring what's going on, some in the fields and some in the streams. And, and then we're trying to affect the way other people do their models, because mostly they ignore perennial agriculture in it, or they treat all of perennial agriculture as alfalfa. And a, and a well-growing uh, pasture is very much more productive and, and interesting than alfalfa. Alfalfa is good. But it's not the same as a well-functioning pasture with 12, 16 species in it. Are you finding some support also now within the land-grant institutions of scientists working with this program yeah. instead of ignoring it or laughing at it? Yeah, no, we are, and, and also in ARS. So this project is one of the um, USDA's research arm, the Agricultural Research Service, one of their national long-term ecological research sites. The only one in Minnesota. So we got that in as kind of part of that network. So that's a, another way of looking at policy besides the big important legislative policies, which are crucial, like crop insurance and shifting that. We want to shift how researchers understand and think about and what they pursue in terms of, uh, uh, of diverse agriculture. Right. I know there needs to be work in improving the uh, cover crops, for example, that can be used in a more northerly climate. I've heard that a number of times as a research priority mm -hmm. to achieve this. And so I, from a, this is a land stewardship project at a state policy level um, is pursuing uh, that change with the University of Minnesota and Don Wise and other, other faculty and, you know, in conjunction with MISA and Greenland's Blue Waters to get money from the state to do public research on minor crops, so to speak, but they can be new kind of cover crops. Mm -hmm. so I have to say, too, looking back and somewhat here in my own past, this discussion of narrative, as you were thinking, talking about it, brought to mind, you know, at the roots of the forming of Land Stewardship Project in 1982 was, while we didn't call it that, was really changing the narrative, and, and that is honoring the notion of stewardship as a fundamental basis for a healthy agriculture and trying to get that elevated. Yes. Uh, and there we were thinking um, a lot of our alliance ended up trying to link into some of the churches mm -hmm. that still had this at uh, least uh, legacy of the notion of stewardship as being part, uh, part of a responsible farmer's obligation or major part of it. I know. And now, and now with the Pope's encyclical, yeah. what an amazing statement about that. Um, I mean, I think the many other parts of the church sort of strayed from that view <laughs> in between the 80s and, and the Pope's encyclical. But he, I think, brings us back there 
So I had the opportunity to meet with Sister Mary Tashini just last week at uh, in Mankato, who we worked with back when we were getting this land stewardship project going. And there too, it that harkened back, interestingly enough, to a visit, at least partly to a visit by a pope by the Pope mm. uh, in Iowa, and uh, a lot of uh, the bishops, uh, the bishop statement called "Strangers and Guests." Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's interesting to me to see something's happening again after about 40 years in that that arena coming from the church. It, it is. It's really fascinating. I mean, uh, this, you know, Pope is leading uh, on many different levels, I think. And, and here he's connecting poverty and inequity, social inequity amongst humans to the way that we look at uh, nature. Right. And that's powerful. Mm-hmm. We have, I think that's one of the things we're also trying to do here. And one of the things that um, I think sustainable agriculture and all of us together have evolved because those were separate dimensions earlier. Uh, I don't think by intention, but just, you know, we came to the different focuses. Right. But now they're getting tied back together. And that's that's very powerful because our the shift in power is not going to come from alliances with mainline agriculture groups. They're not, they don't want to change. They don't feel they have to. <laughs> so we've got to get the power to change from different, different um, collaborations and different alignments of movements. So I guess one thing to say about narrative, and I, uh, you may have talked about this earlier with other other folks, but I think it's a it's a dimension of power, uh, and and we're humans, and uh, facts are really important. But oftentimes, I think as humans, we make decisions based on whether or not something fits our story of our understanding of the world, mm-hmm. and we'll dismiss facts that don't too often. I mean, we as humans, but then certainly decision makers do and, and, and leaders do. So we have to operate on both levels. We have to operate always factually, but understanding that we need to build, uh, uh, kind of shift the story about what's possible. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about with what Land Stewardship Project was trying to do in the early days. Stewardship is possible. It's not impossible, even in the 1980s, 70s climate of plant fence row to fence row. Um, and we need to make more of that possible. And that's large part of what the narrative work is about. It's not just simple messages, because we could spend a lot of money on messages that would kind of fall flat. But we need to, uh, we need to deeply touch with people's values and then talk and then help them see the story that they hear all the time that we all hear all the time like the like it's all about economics you know i mean that's the coffee shop talk you're judged and how well you're doing or or how black the soil is or whatever it would be so we need to shift what's possible in terms of helping people understand that they're hearing that that may not be aligned exactly with what they believe and what then is it that they want? And how do we, how do we talk about that? 
And then how do we tie these individual success stories together so they're not just separate events, but they're part of a growing thread of change. And then that thread of change what's, uh, could lead then also or incorporate the policies that need to happen to Absolutely. Sort of Absolutely. I think part of that narrative work then that LSP and colleagues, many of them in NSAC, but not all, National Sustainable Ag Coalition, are trying to get at is we, right now, somebody like Colin Peterson's not going to be able to go against crop insurance, even if he really wanted to, and get reelected. You mean against the, in other words, Representative Peterson's political career could be threatened by if he took on the establishment in the uh, crop insurance? Because more people would line up and say, what are you doing? then would say, I think that's what you need to do. We need to change that dynamic right. in the countryside, in his district, and in many other districts, so that he then has the freedom to be able to say, well, I think we need some change in that. And to his credit, um, he supported you know, some of the changes in conservation stewardship program and so forth. Right, and as I understand that that came about uh, for, he came to realize that he does indeed have a constituency out there. It may not be the dominant one, but there is a constituency that does demands to be listened to and, and has deserves some attention to. And so we have to build that that constituency and his understanding that it's build it's growing. And uh, and and that's true for to get change more broadly as well. I think whether it's in, just in agriculture or not policy because Cargill has what how many 30 lobbyists at least in Washington DC probably Monsanto does um, the Farm Bureau does so we need we need to shift the dynamics in the countryside well very good I uh, I think we've really covered the things I wanted to cover I wanted to check in with you though to see if there's any anything else you'd like to say or anything more about like the future uh, particularly where land stewardship is headed. I think with this whole narrative idea, you've made it quite clear, but do you have anything else you'd like to add for the record? Well, maybe just two things. I mean, first is just say, you know, thank you to you and Chuck and, and people in the, in, in, the, in the early day that had the vision to say, you know, we need to cooperate together to have an impact in Washington, D.C. We've been lucky to have somebody like Ferd Hefner mm -hmm. there who, who uh, still uh, uh, keeps his uh, connections to the ground, <laughs> yes. uh, uh, to the countryside in front of him and hasn't lost that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's really quite amazing. Um, so we've been a, it's been a credit to have many, many leaders throughout the time that have really helped bring this to the fore, had the vision to bring it to the fore, to keep it moving, keep it going. So just to say that. Um, um, and I think in terms of where we're headed, um, we need to do much more to build the base of people that are really active and involved in this. We see that as a critical thing. I think we... We want to, to uh, get continuous living cover, if you will, more perennial agriculture, more animals on the land. We have to really get that happening with farmers as much as possible. 
so that when the change in policy comes, they're ready for it. They're receptive to it. They're ready to go rather than saying, fighting it. Um, and we just need that for the health of the landscape. And uh, I think the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of effort by the industry, the, the food industry and the agricultural industry to fight back on this level of narrative because they know that they're, <laughs> that they're losing ground, so to speak. Um, you can see that in various processes that are going on. There's the AGREE process. Um, I don't remember what the acronyms stand for, but um, there's the CONFAB that's had recently with Cargill and General Mills and Hormel and other leaders bemoaning kind of the change in consumer behavior. Um, so I think we need to keep strong and keep working on that narrative level so that, that uh, people understand that much more is possible and that much more is needed and that's what they and and if it is what they want that that, that they'll align with that. I want to touch on a little bit more. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is now, but when I go to the picnic in the summertime land stewardship project and these nice big crowds that come off of this incredible picnic of potluck, a lot of those aren't farmers. There's urban people increasingly interested. And it seems to me that that's part of it too, that that role and that interest of people who care about the food they eat have to be taken in are part of this picture. Absolutely. And can he drive some uh, corporate changes, I mean, too, by just their buying habits? And, the, and, it, and it is. It is. I mean, McDonald's is having you go to cage-free eggs. Right. It's not because they really wanted to, I don't think. It's because they know they need to because they're being asked about it or it's being demanded of them. So, and General Mills, you know, sales of some of their products are declining and they're having to try to understand what a healthier product is because mm -hmm. people are looking for something maybe less processed or some people are, a growing number of people. So it's very crucial. And, you know, in LSP, we have these, we think of them as tandem sort of pairs of approaches. And one of them is that we're a farm and rural organization. And that's where our power for change comes from. But we're closely aligned with and linked to a very active urban membership. Mm -hmm. And I think they want to be part of it because they see that active farm and rural base as well. So, I mean, it, it's a match. It's, um, uh, I mean, another one of those is that we're, we focus on the practical, like what we're doing in the Chippewa 10% project or training beginning farmers, which has been a very successful program. And there's policy aspects to that too. Um, and then looking at the policy components of that or fighting the worst policy, like the siting of factory farms and trying to advance the best, something like Forever Green funding for the University of Minnesota to work on cover crops. So. Right. So those are powerful approaches that got started, you know, with your leadership here at Land Stewardship Riding, where we've been trying to build that. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.